Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking. So today is actually going to be a part two of my experience harvesting hypothesis. So essentially what this is is a continuation of my theory that I put forward um, in in a previous episode about experience harvesting and I'll um, well I'll go into the specifics of, of what that all is in a minute but first of all let me just reiterate that this is purely speculation i'm no expert in the field uh, of ufos i've been looking into this for a relatively short time compared to some people who've been on this for decades so i'm not really talking about this from a, a point of view of i understand the whole thing or anything i'm just bringing my kind of ordinary person you know fascinated in the ufo topic been looking into it pretty obsessively now for for a year or two and um some things that that just pop up in my head as being interesting things that may or may not be the case. So with that in mind, let me just quickly summarise my experience harvesting hypothesis for anybody that didn't listen to the previous episode. Probably worth actually going checking it out, actually, if you you find this kind of thing interesting, because I I do go into a lot of detail about it in that first episode. And tons of people got in touch with me after that one. I was really surprised. I think it's probably the most listened to episode of the podcast. So um, thanks for everybody who who gave me a shout about that one. Um, But essentially, what what it all comes down to with this like hypothesis is if you imagine that the human race is on a path to continuously improve technology at a faster and faster rate and there's no signs of that slowing down in fact actually with every advancement in technology it allows us to advance to the next stage of advancement even faster and it's safe to assume that the technology of 50 years from now will be completely unrecognizable to the technology that we have around us today um, with the development of Neuralink and similar technologies which, which are currently in development, it seems logical to me that it's just a matter of time until the technologies which we currently carry around in a mobile phone will be connected directly to the brain. Um, taking this a step further, once we've achieved that, a Neuralink-type technology from an, 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 which is basically an implanted chip within the human brain for anybody who's not aware. Again, probably want to listen back to the first episode if you're not, not really well up on all that side of it. But the next logical pro- progression from there is to just have no need for a chip. And the human brain will directly interface with the internet and or whatever thing it is that replaces the internet one day. And... All the knowledge that humans have ever gathered will be available to the human brain completely wirelessly. Because if you think about it, that's what the internet represents, isn't it? Everything that human beings have ever looked into or been able to understand, or at least that which is recorded, is available to for you to just go and check out a few clicks and you can find the answers to things that may have baffled people for years, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. You know, no matter what it is, whatever specialist particular question you're asking, you can probably find out some pretty reasonably reliable uh, answers to that question very, very quickly just by looking online. And that is massively improved since mobile phones came about because I'm, I'm old enough to understand that or to have experienced life before mobile phones. When I was when I was a young lad, um, we had no mobile phones. We we didn't really even have the internet. I was kind of just that last generation where we grew up without the internet or phones. Actually, a lot of other uh, people around my neighbourhood and things where I grew up actually did have a computer and the internet way before I did because my family we didn't really have too much money flying around to get like computers used to be extremely expensive and then the internet was expensive and so on so we just didn't have that option but um even still we were only really a few years behind other people um and and then you know when that first came about you have 
you know encyclopedia i remember somebody one of my friends had a, D, a cd uh, collection because it's even before dvds actually uh, of the encyclopedia britannica which was just like you know an encyclopedia i mean that's a thing of the past now isn't it you know it used to be that you'd have to go and get a book off the wall and then flick through till you find a page and if you were lucky there might be a paragraph about the thing you were interested in and now you've got the entire internet you could probably find like thousands and thousands of pages and you know extremely highly detailed video documentaries about the same thing that you might have only had a paragraph on you know back in the day so you know that is uh, that was an absolutely massive step for human human beings it affects it profoundly affects the reality that you actually experience in your lifetime and then obviously what i was getting at a minute ago is mobile phones made that even more significant because all of a sudden you don't have to wait until you go home and then log on to your dial-up internet and then f wait for a bit and then eventually no 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 you've got all of that on your phone you've got a little rectangle that sits in your pocket that you carry everywhere with you and you can find out the answers to pretty much anything you want to find out within a few seconds i mean that is amazing and you know if you imagine how that's going to eventually carry on and you know where we're going to be in another 10 or another 20 years or another 30 years and even when you think about the fact that there's a whole generation of kids now being brought up with all of this information at the fingertips you know and i often hear people talking about oh kids of today you know when i was a kid we used to do things a better way and things like that i understand it I understand it because I was part of that generation where you could just go and play out with your friends and you were trusted to come home and, you know, you weren't being, you know, monitored constantly but by your location through your phone app or, you know, iWatch and all these types of things. But on the other way of looking at it, though, I do feel that particular outlook of, oh, it was better back in the day, I do feel as though it's a little bit pessimistic because the other way to look at it is that, you know, there's a whole generation of kids now being brought up with an unbelievable amount of information at the fingertips, you know, and, and it's going to inspire a whole new way of looking at the world and a whole new way of investigating the things that we that we want to get to the bottom of, you know, which UFOs and things is a part of that, no question about it. You know, it's like UFO Twitter, you're now able to network and communicate with people who are as fascinated with ufos as, as you are you know whereas previously you, you might never in your lifetime speak to somebody who's that fascinated and you know the internet and twitter has brought people together to work together on this topic and get to the bottom of it and then you've got things like podcasts you know which is a way that you can really listen to somebody going into real detail about the, the topic of ufos and so on but anyway if we take that a step further from where we actually are right now imagine where we're going to end up and what really intrigues me which is kind of following on from what i was talking about in the previous episode is how Neuralink and technologies like that will actually affect the reality that we experience in our lifetime just like a mobile phone can completely change you know the way that you live your life and, and i've recently got an apple iWatch, and again it just changes things you know the whole way that you live your day-to-day -day life changes can you imagine how significant that would be if you don't even have a device in your pocket and you just wirelessly connect to essentially all the knowledge that humans have ever managed to amass i mean that's that's pretty significant and then f carrying on from that ever since i recorded that first episode I've been looking into a couple of significant cases and again I'm no expert on these cases so I can't claim to know all about them but I found them really really interesting. Now the first one is um, a study on some conjoined twins in Canada, the Hogan twins and again you can google uh, the Hogan twins and you can find quite a lot of information about them but essentially these these two twins actually share a brain connection through the brain stem so we're not talking about you know just like uh, conjoined twins who are joined together at say skin level or even at bone level we're actually talking about they actually the brain stem itself is actually conjoined so they're so 
deeply conjoined at the head level that it's been deemed that it's too risky to ever separate them because there's a high chance one of them could become paralyzed or one of them could die as a result of the very major operation that it would take to separate the two twins. And what's really interesting to me about that is the two consciousnesses are actually connected in ways that that are really quite fascinating. So, for example, there's a few situations like when one of the when one of the twins is tickled, the other twin can actually laugh. And when one of them has a, a dummy or a, a pacifier, as they call it in, in the States, for all my US listeners out there, um, the other one would stop crying. So the actual nervous systems of these two girls, because the two girls, I don't think I mentioned that earlier, their actual nervous systems are connected at such a level where they actually can share you know, sensory input. And that also ties in with uh, another slightly different case of um, the rat brain experiments as well, which I've heard about have been carried out. So obviously this is not to sort of like compare the two as though they're the same thing because obviously they're not. You know, we're talking about um, a, a sort of really quite morally questionable experiment to do with rats, um, you know, and we're talking about two human beings, obviously, in the case of the Hogan twins. So I don't want to try and draw any similarities at all in, in, in that kind of a way. But the experiment that was done on, on the rats, as I say, quite morally questionable, to be honest, but um, the results of the experiments are, are available. So it doesn't make sense to ignore them. Uh, not to say that I agree with the fact that how it was done in the first place. That's a whole different debate. But essentially what was done with these rats was um, there was, and again, a little bit gory, the details here. So um, if you don't like hearing about that kind of thing, you might want to skip 30 seconds or something. But yeah, essentially uh, what took place was they, they drilled um, a hole into the into the skull of, of a rat and then placed these uh, little electrical um, the electrodes kind of thing in into the brain which allowed them to essentially um connect the brains of, of these two rats and then they, they they managed to perform a series of experiments where when one rat received some information they were completely separated the two rats and unable to see each other and when one rat actually received um a sensory input of which button to press so one rat was told which button to press and the other rat actually received that information through the connection between the two brains and then was able to know which button to press apparently 70% of the time and upon pressing the correct button both rats would receive a, a, a reward um, at least I think it was both rats I'm, I'm not exactly sure of all the specifics of the experiment but I use that as an example I'm something I'm going to be looking into a lot more as well to find out more about it and I may well do another episode in more detail about it but the point is is that it is possible to be able to actually connect together two brains two consciousnesses just in the same way that conjoined twins would be and that what was actually found in the rat brain experiments as well this was a, a really kind of mind-blowing point to me was that they managed to connect up an infrared sensor so infrared obviously is a spectrum of light which we can't pick up on with human eyes um, you know it's invisible you can fire an infrared beam across the room like what comes from a remote control and you can't see it but it is there and they managed to actually connect up an infrared sensor to the rat's brain and what they found and this is the bit that really blew me away was that the brain of the rat very readily accepts new input from a new sensory device so quite rapidly the rat just accepted that it could now see infrared as a result of having the infrared sensor directly plugged into the brain which is really quite mind-blowing because we're limited to the five senses that we've got we're limited to the spectrum of light we can see we're limited to the spectrum of sound that we can hear we can't see say for example microwaves or we can't hear um 
very very high frequency sounds like what a bat can for example and it appears that actually the brain is quite open to receiving new sensory information coming from different sensors you know it's just that we don't actually have that so when you think about how that relates to technologies like Neuralink it's quite possible that when Neuralink actually becomes available that you may be able to add new sensors to your own brain and be able to actually see things way outside of the current spectrum of sound and and light that, that is available to us things like for example when with ufos you know certain ufos have been reported to only be invisible on infrared cameras all of a sudden if human beings can see the infrared spectrum it completely changes our understanding of reality and it could well be that that's just the tip of the iceberg and obviously this is all very speculative and all very new technologies which we don't really understand yet and, and how it would work but fascinating nonetheless and obviously me not being you know a neuroscientist which not many of us are i don't think who listen to this podcast and by the way if you're a neuroscientist please do get in touch with me because i would i would be really fascinated to see what you think um about what i'm talking about here you know or if anybody's just you know been really fascinated by this stuff even if you're not a neuroscientist you know do get in touch um it'd be great to hear some some other viewpoints on it because it's something that's been kind of blowing my mind recently um obviously you know at ufo thinker on twitter and um ufo thinker at hotmail.com um or recently set up ufo thinker at protonmail.com for anybody who's got any really interesting classified information or anything of that nature that you want to share there's a secure email now available never know who knows eh? maybe someone's going to drop something really interesting in there one day but as i said obviously all of this really is um you know speculation and what what i've been trying to get my head around is where does that where is that going to lead us with the advent of these new technologies becoming available and what I've heard a few people discussing, especially in relation to the rat brain experiment, is if there is sufficient bandwidth of information transfer from one brain to the next, I've heard it mentioned that actually at that point in time, the two brains actually form a new identity, a new sense of self, which is just that actually the two brains are now one consciousness and it's not very clear at this stage exactly what bandwidth it requires of information transfer between the two brains before the two consciousnesses actually then experience a new reality as one self and it's also not very clear as to would that work the same way with humans and what happens when you then try to separate the two consciousnesses does the individual, the new self that was formed as a result of the conjoining of the two consciousnesses, does that cease to exist? Does it just merely revert back to the initial two separate halves before the, the initial you know, mind meld, as, as, as people sometimes call it? And this is what I need to look into more and that really fascinates me. But there's obviously going to be certain dilemmas there that get thrown up as these new technologies develop and if we assume that whether or not these consciousnesses can choose to merge and revert back to individuality or once the connection has been made a new mass consciousness is born you know like a hive mind um either way we will be looking at you know a, a mass consciousness a hive mind which will either be temporary or permanent and that is going to be significantly more powerful and capable than one con one individual human's consciousness. And it's also more than likely going to be a completely wireless connection as well. Because a chip into your brain is not the most appetizing of prospects, is it? Let's be honest about it. But there was actually another experiment which took place, I believe... I read about this or the articles from 2013, so we're going back quite some time here, um, which was essentially um, the same kind of thing with the two brains being connected together, but this time it was non-invasive, and it was actually ways that um, um, a, a man, a human being, actually had electrodes stuck onto his scalp 
that picked up brainwave activity. And then a rat was actually placed in a machine that uh, focused ultrasound pulses through its skull into its brain. So again, um, it was um, non-invasive. I imagine it probably would not be very pleasant for the rat. And again, morally questionable, but it, it is what it is. The rat was anaesthetized, so it couldn't wriggle its head during the experiment so as to be able to direct the ultrasound pulses accurately. And then the, the man, the human being in the experiment, had a video screen placed in front of him that played a flickering pattern of light. And if he paid attention to the screen, his brain waves would synchronize with the strobe light. And if he looked away or even if he looked at it while thinking of something else, his brain waves would not synchronize with the light flickers. Essentially, what happened was that when the man focused on the flickering pattern, the, the action of focusing on that pattern actually signaled the ultrasound to stimulate part of the sleeping rat's brain, which was responsible for moving its body. And in response to that, the rodent, flicked its tail and apparently that was accurate 94 percent of the time with a very short time delay from the initial thought that the man was trying to uh, put across to the actual movement of the tail so essentially what we're talking about there is um, a direct non-invasive attempt to actually connect two brains and if that is it was happening seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, whatever it is now, there's probably a lot more gone on since and there's probably a lot more still to come. And you have to think that it's not going to be too long. Again, very speculative, but I would say that it's fairly likely that at some stage in time we're going to have wireless brain-to-brain -brain connections. And at that point, you're not far off really having a hive mind you know, and when you've got a hive mind, again, the, there's a lot of questions there. There's a lot of um, dilemmas, moral dilemmas that it throws up. Um, and there's a lot of adjustment that it would take as human beings to adapt to that new reality. And a lot of people will probably be completely against it. There's a lot of people who'd be queuing up to be the first to do it, as with all of these types of things. But I think it's going to be fascinating to see how that side of things actually does, you know, unfold. And and it kind of appears to me to be a little bit more of a, a realistic, probably not the best way to put it, but it, it seems to me that that seems uh, quite a, a likely interpretation of, of what people talk about with one consciousness. And that seems like an, there's an actual path there you know, that we're going to arrive at that point. People talk about one consciousness and we're all part of the same energy and all things like that. Um, never really hit me as being a particularly compelling argument. But this is a one consciousness that I can get behind, you know, to put it simply. Going a step further, I'd say that it's more or less inevitable that we're going to arrive at that point. And it's worth mentioning also that the possibility that we could, you know, give birth to an actual artificial intelligence self-aware life form you know but which is a separate thing really but at this stage i'll, I'll focus on the Neuralink mass consciousness hive mind one consciousness oneness concept and um, because i, I kind of see a direct path to that and it seems inevitable that we will arrive at that point it's a case of when and not if and you know it, it's possibly just down to my lack of knowledge about artificial intelligence systems, I, I personally can't see a direct path to a self-aware AI at this point. But there may be other people who know different. So again, if, if you have any info on that, be interested to hear. It fascinates me. I just don't really see how the direct path is going to be to that at this point in the near future anyway. Whereas I do think it seems a direct path that Neuralink is going to come to pass sooner or later. And to carry on that train of thinking... It seems quite likely that if a civilization does exist out there somewhere else in the universe, that they may have already arrived at that stage. Because it's somewhat logical. I think you could probably say that it's logical that eventually that's going to happen. Like, if you look at our society 
again going back say 500 or a thousand years where they didn't have any kind of uh, communication devices like mobile phones or the internet and if you kind of rewind back in time and then just let things play out again it seems like you could do that however many times you want rewind before we have mass communication like mobile phones and the internet and so on and eventually we're going to arrive at that because it's just it makes so much more sense to have mass communication and be able to communicate ideas so much more efficiently like we have now i would say that you know it's a logical progression of any intelligent civilization that you would it would be an extremely desirable outcome to get to so if you if you think it's fairly likely that another civilization may have evolved somewhere else out out there in the universe even if that's again you know the numbers involved of probabilities and possible planets that life could could evolve on are so overwhelmingly huge that you know i wouldn't like to put a number on anything with with probabilities of how many times that may have happened but let's just say there could have been you know at least one intelligence that's evolved somewhere out there in the universe and they they may have already arrived at that that point of mass communication and then after that they may have arrived at the 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 hive mind um sort of like a con- conclusion of, of of technology advancing and then there's probably you know conclusions that that can be reached even further down the line that perhaps we can't even imagine at this point that once things like a hive mind is is available to humans the progression of our technology at that stage is going to you know even even faster is going to start to pick up the pace and be able to evolve into things that we can't imagine but let's say there is an intelligence out there that has arrived at that point a thousand years ago or ten thousand years ago or a million years further back in history at some stage think about what the the progression of technology will be at that stage if you can actually directly you know wirelessly connect your brain up to all of the consciousnesses in the in the world and simultaneously you know exchange ideas instantaneously with every single other human being on the planet the the amount of innovation and progression that will take place once that comes online is pretty much incomprehensible to us at the moment and if that's actually happened somewhere out there maybe a thousand ten thousand a million years ago they could be living in a reality that's beyond anything that we can possibly imagine as i say once you reach that stage and you're able to add new sensory input to your own brain you're able to instantaneously communicate with anybody on the planet at any one moment in time it's it's very very difficult to imagine what could actually be achieved with that kind of technology available and as shown by you know the rats in the in the brain link experiment the brain as an organ is readily capable of adapting to new sensory inputs it's almost a bit like plugging in a new usb mouse into your your computer your computer just accepts the new input coming in through the usb slot and just goes right no problem okay that's how we're going to do things from now on it sounds as though the human brain can do something similar or at least the brain of a rat we don't really know about humans yet or at least not that we're aware of so the, the findings of the rat brain link experiment seems to suggest that the brain is capable of doing that and um, when plugged into another individual's brain such as being able to see or feel something that the individual is feeding back into the linked brain at this stage you could assume that any consciousness that are linked to a a hive mind will be able to feed back their sensory input from their ears eyes hands imaginations and allow the hive mind to experience whatever sensory input is is being um, experienced for that individual and once the hive mind stage has been reached and it's worth again pointing out that you know that doesn't exist at the moment and this is all highly speculative but once the hive mind stage has been reached what would remain to be seen is if you remove one of the consciousnesses from that hive mind what would be the effects on the hive mind 
would it continue to just see itself as an individual with one less sensory input and the, the individual you've removed from the hive mind then just reverts back to a sense of individuality obviously all of that is completely unknown at this stage and something i'm really going to try and dig into more but it could be that we arrive at a consciousness there which is no longer limited to existing within the confines of a biological body so if you think of the situation where you have a thousand brains linked up as, a, as one hive mind consciousness and then you remove some of those because the biological bodies unfortunately pass away that hive mind could still then exist as a consciousness and you could just keep adding new sensory inputs new individuals to that hive mind and that hive mind itself if if it is indeed possible that that becomes a a new sense of self this hive mind has its own sense of self as 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 one being it could potentially achieve unbelievable things for one but it could also potentially live outside of the confines of a human body you would have a non-local consciousness which is formed from all of these other separate individual consciousnesses and perhaps even a high percentage of all the humans on the planet will one day eventually be plugged into this hive mind and if that is the case we are talking about a true one consciousness of the human race and that one consciousness could survive even when individual humans you know biologically die or you know the biological body of that one particular human being perishes and that might seem like a a completely bizarre possibility to some and it seems a bit like a completely bizarre possibility to me as well but is it really that bizarre the human brain really is just a collection of individual neurons you know biological cells which all connect together in a way that we don't really understand to form some sense of self and consciousness and individuality which we again don't really understand the full picture of is it really that much different to think of thousands or millions of human beings individual brains connecting up to form a new sense of like a mass self one hive mind and the question that really intrigues me is is what would a mass consciousness like this actually do and it strikes me as very possible that a mass consciousness, and this is essentially the core of, of the the harvesting, the experience harvesting hypothesis. So it strikes me that the, the mass consciousness, the hive mind, would continue to seek out knowledge and experiences. And one thing that unites all humans without any question is our desire to experience things. Now, that's something that has never changed throughout history and has never changed with the new advancements in technology. In fact, every new advancement in technology brings with it new ways for our consciousness to experience new things. And the things that an individual actually seeks to experience will be different from one individual to the next. But it's very rare for an individual to not want to experience anything so that's the one thing that we've all got in common that's the one thing that all individuals on this planet want to do is to experience things and if you add to this the leaps in technology that a mass consciousness would be able to achieve due to the the, the mashing together of millions of you know potentially millions of minds and the instantaneous sharing of ideas you have to wonder what experiences a consciousness of that nature would actually seek out within the universe. And if a mass consciousness like that was able to be formed, it would be very unlikely to risk its biological basis, i.e., you know, the biological life forms that actually gave rise to the hive mind in the first place. And could it be that one of the first goals of the hive mind at that stage would be to elevate itself beyond the biological basis and that could be some kind of upload of the mass consciousness to a server or perhaps you know the 3d printing of of new sensors to actually go out and explore the universe therefore not risking any of the biological bodies of of the people forming the the mass consciousness so I was talking earlier about how the brain or a consciousness can readily accept new sensory input. So at that point, if you have a hive mind, 
stands to reason that you may be able to actually create new sensors, you know, i.e. a like a, a robot, for example. Now, we think of a robot at our stage of development with technology as something made of plastic and metal that we can control, or a drone, for example. A drone, you know, is a flying piece of metal and plastic. But when you consider the abilities that that, that hive mind would have and the technologies it'd have at its fingertips, you know, no pun intended, and also the fact that the desire to experience things has never gone away and is quite likely to never go away, surely one of the things that that mass consciousness would look to achieve is to send out probes by the millions or even by the billions, each one a sensor for that you know, mass hive mind to be able to experience more about the universe. And as I explained in the previous episode on this theory, it's possible that humans, ourselves, or indeed all life on this planet could be probes. Again, we think of, of devices that we make as being made from metal and made of metal or plastic and being inanimate objects. But it could be that this planet itself was impregnated by a mass you know, consciousness somewhere out there that's developed in the universe. And one time in the far distant past, even a single cell organism or perhaps just the building blocks of a single cell organism were actually planted on this planet. And when you consider that a hive mind of that nature could potentially live for billions of years, or you know, an unlimited amount of years, surely an experience like that would be unbelievably fascinating to be able to seed a barren planet with a type of, a type of sensor that could replicate and grow and flourish and evolve in its own ways over millions and billions of years to you know experience an unbelievably rich tapestry of different experiences think of the desire of humans to live vicariously through other human beings by watching films or reading books or listening to music could it be that an unbelievably advanced hive mind consciousness could actually create new life forms with with which to live vicariously through. Now, this could be the seeding of a barren planet and the observation of how this progresses, potentially done on a mass scale with even millions of planets across the universe, and maybe we're just one of those. Another way to look at it could be that that's not the case, and life did just arise naturally on this planet, and we were merely discovered at some point throughout the evolution of life. And then maybe we've been influenced, you know, so it's kind of like the ancient alien theories. Um, you know, maybe we've been influenced by that hive mind, which arose millions of years before we did. And perhaps they just hijacked our evolution and then influenced our development, our evolution, just subtly. Or maybe going completely the other way, they didn't influence us at all, and they merely just observe us. But what I would suggest is that whichever of those outcomes you see is most likely, perhaps they have a way of tapping into our experiences and actually experiencing the things that all life on this planet experiences, and they use that to enrich their consciousness. And if that was the case, perhaps all of the different UFOs that we witness have and have been witnessing throughout history maybe they're some kind of harvesting device or even some kind of influencing device and perhaps you know the the, the cyclical nature of all things seems to suggest like the seasons on this planet the cycle of life and death you know day and night perhaps it's inevitable that as we progress through time we will form a hive mind of our own and then, in turn, we will ourselves go down a similar path. A similar path as the consciousness that created us in the first place. Or, you know, and in that situation, we would make our own sensors which to put out into the world. And these sensors would go forth and multiply and then feed back the realities of their existence back into the, the consciousness that humans created. And we would use that to enrich our knowledge of the universe. Or if we were never created by a consciousness in the first place, perhaps we'll still go down that path of creating all the consciousness. 
you know on, on another planet to feed back experiences to us you know maybe just for the fascination and to experience new unique experienced you know it's like if you wanted to gather as many different unique outlooks on the universe as possible the life on this planet is not a bad way to go about that every single human being experiences a slightly different interpretation of reality that's the nature of genetic variation everybody looks slightly different everybody's brain works in a very slightly different way but kind of similar at the same time and you know it would be a pretty fascinating thing to observe from the point of view of a a a, a hive mind that maybe is capable of doing that and something i've talked about in the past and i touched on this earlier in the podcast is the oneness theories and the things i've read into kind of i feel like the, the oneness ideas and you know love and light and everything's made of light and consciousness and blah 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 seems to kind of miss the point of the endless variation of individual life forms you know and again it's a bit of a loaded term these days but you know the snowflake thing every snowflake being completely individual no geometric pattern the same you know the same can be said for any life form on this earth whether it's been created specifically to create unique experience gathering devices or maybe just the nature of the universe leads to an endless variation of complex organisms with which to experience new experiences either way of looking at it is is extremely fascinating and one thing i've been thinking about a lot recently is is the work of you know some some prominent ufologists and to be honest i've kind of strayed away purposely from reading into too much detail the work of other ufologists because strange as it may sound i kind of wanted to develop some of my own concepts and theories before i read too much into other people's theories but over the last sort of year or so i've been considering the thoughts of of some you know prominent ufologist find a few that i, I really respect and delve in and uh, uh i've been looking into jacques valet obviously a legend of ufology and jacques had five points that he published at some stage regarding the extraterrestrial hypothesis and why he considers it to be quite unlikely so with jack being such a highly respected researcher by many people in the ufo community and myself included i thought i'd use those five points as a bit of a counter argument to my theory and to see how my hypothesis kind of holds up with those five points considered so jack's thing was you know five points against the extraterrestrial hypothesis and essentially what i'm talking about here is an extraterrestrial hypothesis it's not the standard little green men in flying saucers type of thing but it is still essentially an extraterrestrial hypothesis so let's get into that so number one then of 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 jacques valet's kind of points to to outline why the extraterrestrial hypothesis you know is unlikely which as i say is completely counter to what i'm saying here so let's examine the points so number one is unexplained close encounters are far more numerous than required for any physical survey of the earth so i i would say that that's very true throughout human history there's been an unbelievable amount of individual experiences with close encounters However, the problem I have with that point is that it kind of rests on the fact that these close encounters come about as a result of the desire to survey the earth. What if these others which were being witnessed in close encounters, such as greys, for example, could be mere biological devices used to specifically make contact with individual humans for purposes of potentially either implanting certain memories to subtly influence human development or perhaps to measure or you know physical changes within human brains you know i see no reason that an extraterrestrial civilization would want to physically survey the earth or humans even for that matter you know, perhaps more likely that they'd be interested in subtly influencing 
in our humans or perhaps measuring certain changes in the brain as a result of the curiosity of you know how how humans are actually developing so i I would say that the 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 close encounters are not necessarily a survey of the earth in any way but could actually just be perhaps if if humans were created by some kind of hive mind consciousness which developed a long long time ago then they would want to monitor the progress of their um creations you know i I think a physical survey of the earth is 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 not necessarily something that they would be doing a physical survey of humans probably more likely and if that is the case then surely the they would be very regular and and i've also been listening to a few theories recently as well along the lines of perhaps the others have actually tried to contact governments in the past or to subtly influence leaders of countries and they've not been successful in that way this is something i've heard exo academian from the the fantastic point of convergence podcast talking about which is if the others may have perhaps tried to actually directly contact governments you know potentially gift technology to governments which i don't really see as a convincing theory personally the the technology gifting theory but not to go into that too much for, for just now if if these efforts may have, have failed in the past and and the the kind of the others are keen to to change the course of human history in some way perhaps one of the ways they would do that is reaching out directly to individuals rather than trying to reach any kind of a power group within society anyway moving on to the next point for now so number two uh, of Jacques Vallée's points there is number two is the humanoid body structure of the alleged aliens is not likely to have originated on another planet and is not biologically adapted to space travel so on this particular point it directly linked back to what I was saying in the previous point it could well be that a mass consciousness hive mind that had originated somewhere else in the universe could have specifically created biological bodies which are more adapted to being somewhat you know similar to humans but different enough that the human being actually being contacted would be able to tell that it wasn't human if if a hive mind could create new bodies you know new new senses to actually go forth into the universe and interact with other species or perhaps subtly change things about another species maybe that's what they would they would go for something somewhat similar but slightly by slightly different biological body to go and interact with that life form so it could be that the the actual the human the nature of the humanoid greys and and various others that we see is is merely a, a device which is being created specifically for the purpose of interacting with human beings and that body shape has been created subtly different so that we are aware that it's not an actually a human but different different enough so that we know that but similar enough so that we know that it is a being of some type as i say this hive mind mass consciousness may have no need for a body by the stage that of development that they're up to but perhaps they just create this body so that it's somewhat familiar but somewhat different at the same time but obviously the 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 whole thing here with this particular point you know it's it's unbelievably difficult to actually to really kind of make any conclusions because it massively depends on what the actual purpose of the visits from these others actually is even all about because if if you were a hive mind type of consciousness and you can create some kind of biological bodies which exist in a, in a sense that we can actually uh, interact with them or they can interact with us and things like that the motivation for why they're even doing that in the first place would affect the actual form that they would take um, one of the things that, that Jacques actually mentions in this particular point is if the day was 100 hours long instead of 24 hours mankind as we know it could have not evolved or survived at all and and that is in relation to um why would these 
others appear to be humanoid because it's very very unlikely in the in the in the expanse of the universe that there would be another earth-like environment for life to actually evolve um so why is it that they, they appear to be humanoid and and the point that jacques is making there um I, I think anyway my interpretation of it is that it's more likely perhaps that these others are some kind of other dimension of humans like another dimension of the universe where a similar kind of thing to humans exists uh, but is, is is in a different has followed gone down a different path uh, or possibly even that it's humans from the future and and it's very unlikely that if we were to actually come across some kind of extraterrestrial beings that they would be so similar to humans but what i'm trying to say uh, about this particular point is it could be that the specific design of the beings that are encountered by people during sightings and you know abductions and things like that could specifically be um designed to look humanoid just purely because it gives that that relatively familiar um experience but they would if they wanted it to be a completely familiar experience then they would make themselves appear to just look exactly like a human so it's a it's a tricky one to get your head around but i was thinking about it if you were actually let's say you experienced an abduction and the abduction was actually perpetrated by some beings that looked like little gray aliens the typical gray aliens would that be more or less terrifying than if you woke up in some kind of a sphere of light or some craft or whatever and you were being operated on by humans now arguably it's probably more scary if you're actually being you know operated on by humans is it is it i mean it's it's a tricky question isn't it because if you've been abducted by humans and you've been operated on that's really terrifying if you're being abducted by aliens and you're being operated on obviously that's pretty terrifying as well but i don't know possibly the the motivation for being abducted by aliens could be less scary than if you're abducted by humans like let's face it if you're abducted by humans against your will and then they cut you open and start doing stuff to you it's not going to end well is it but perhaps there's a possibility that if you're abducted by aliens that subconsciously you feel as though you're probably going to be okay afterwards whereas with humans abducting you and doing operations on you you might assume in that moment that you're not going to survive the experience it could be something as simple as that so if these others were going to create some kind of a, um, a, a biological you know representation to interact with humans perhaps that could be the reason so if you just created them to look exactly like humans that could actually be interpreted by some experiences to be more terrifying than it would actually be to create these kind of um you know humanoid um like uh, basically to mimic what we expect aliens to look like because that's what they have become in popular culture um you know again it's 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 speculation but um, just thought it was it was worth mentioning that particular point there uh, as well uh, and, and in some cases with abduction it depends how you, you you read into these specific cases but like the travis walton case for example he mentions that there were actual humans that look exactly like humans and there were also kind of uh, other beings as well which looks somewhat humanoid um but were not actually human and it could be that they create a, a variety of different um you know beings some of them that look exactly like humans some of them that look somewhat humanoid but are clearly alien and that that could be all done on purpose to um depending on what is needed at certain points during the experience um for example if the if the subject of uh, you know of the abduction is reacting really badly to the alien greys perhaps then they, they try out the humans and bring the humans in see if that calms them down a little bit and things of that nature but Anyway, moving on to the next uh, point then. So the next one is point three, abduction reports. So Jacques' main point here seems to be that 
experiments undertaken by the others appear to be rather crude and why would they only partially erase memories leaving them accessible through regression etc when arguably um, a, a, a kind of a, an intelligence of that level of advancement probably would have the ability to completely remove the memories and not allow, not leave any behind um, so why would they leave certain memories accessible through regression when they could probably just completely erase them and uh, also the the incisions etc that have been reported um, on people who've had abduction experiences if these were indeed being perpetrated by an extraterrestrial intelligence why would they have um, incision marks and things left on the body surely they would have a, a better ways of of you know retrieving the um the actual parts of the human that they wanted to retrieve without leaving obvious marks and things on the body this is a pretty hard point to counter really uh, in terms of you know seeing how that relates to my hypothesis um it probably is going to require a bit more thought on this particular point it's very intriguing um it's, it's intriguing when you relate it to my experience harvesting hypothesis but it's also intriguing as well just generally within the ufo topic how do you kind of get your head around that why would they want to leave certain memories in the experiencer's mind which can be then accessed at a later date you know it, it i suppose you could argue that they wouldn't leave the memories just like readily accessible they, they leave the memories buried and somewhat somewhat kind of um you know cover, covered over within the the memory of the individual so that if the individual desires they can then access those memories through things like regressions and 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 you know just really focusing on um getting those memories whereas if if the individual subconsciously doesn't want to access the memories they, they, they don't have to uh, could that be a, a reason why that actually happens um i guess possibly um it's a bit more difficult for me to get my head around why they would leave physical marks on the the abductees because that doesn't really seem to make much sense surely they would have if they were so advanced surely they would have some way to to make it completely you know unknowable that they'd done anything you know tricky one tricky one that's that's one of the tougher points there to deal with moving on to point four history so this point has to do with the fact that the sightings seem to change and evolve over time in line with our human technology so if indeed the ufos are extraterrestrial in origin why does our perception of them change so in the in the distant past there were numerous cases of chariots flying through the sky at the point in time when human beings uh, main form of transport was a horse and or a chariot and then obviously as time has gone along it seems almost as though the extraterrestrial technologies if that's what they are in indeed are and um, the, the things that are being witnessed do change and seem to always kind of stay one step ahead of what humans are actually doing at that point in time and um quoting uh, from from uh, jacques valet's actual point here quote the abduction claims are especially interesting to the proponents of the psychosociological theory it is difficult to find a culture on earth that does not have an ancient tradition of little people that fly through the sky and abduct humans it is standard for them to take their victims into spherical settings that are evenly illuminated and to subject them to various ordeals such as operations on internal organs and astral trips to unknown landscapes. Sexual or genetic interaction is also a common theme in this body of folklore. Unquote. So what Jacques is kind of, of getting at here is that these things have taken place throughout history and all cultures seem to have um, stories of these things actually happening. And not only that, the, the actual sightings of the craft themselves actually seem to change over time. But again, if this hive mind intelligence was, was actually creating specific kind of avatars to actually come and do certain interactions or perhaps even give us hints in some way um, as to the presence of this hive mind it would seem that 
if they did that, they would do something of that nature. They would base their appearance of whatever avatar they were creating on what we kind of expect them to to have. So I think that is the way that the the actual ufos themselves seem to change and evolve in line with our expectations in a way is not outside of the realms of possibility for a, a very advanced hive mind creating physical avatars to actually directly interact with us or monitor us or influence us in some way and then point five physical considerations so this point suggests that despite appearing to be physical in nature these crafts seem to completely disobey the laws of physics and this could suggest some kind of interdimensional phenomenon rather than a physical you know nuts and bolts craft from another star system which yeah i think that's very much the case but however it, it could be possible that as a hive mind expands perhaps it sheds the physical body and evolves its technical capabilities to the point where the following points could actually happen. So when the rat brain experiment showed that the brain could accept new sensory inputs, and it, it did this with um, magnetic sensors. So the rat brain was actually had a, a, a magnetic sensor actually, um, you know, embedded into the brain, um, where basically there was a magnetic sensor that could sense magnetic waves and the rat's brains in that experiment quite readily accepted this new sensory input to the point where the rat could actually sense when i believe in the experiment the way they did it was um, a magnet was placed over the top of the the the, the cage or wherever the rat was um, at the point when food was going to be um, given to the rat so the rat came to quickly uh, accept the first of all that it could sense this magnetic field over the top of it through the sensor that had been implanted into the brain so the the brain just naturally was able to accept this new information of of the um of the magnetic waves being detected and then it quickly came to associate that with the fact that it was about to receive some food so the magnet was placed over it the rat became excited because it knew that the food was going to be in a particular area and then it went directly to the particular area so that shows that the the a, a consciousness that a, a brain can can accept new sensory inputs quite readily and could it be possible then that a hive mind could accept a whole host of new sensory inputs through physical sensors and also maybe some non-physical sensors so it could be that the hive mind actually ceases to exist you know at a physical level but or, or any level really detectable by our five senses but it can manifest certain things in our reality as detectable by the five senses that we have in order to interact with us or pick up sensory data from our, our actual reality. So think of it as like the hive mind could potentially have the sensors to detect like say x-rays so humans can't see x-rays we can't hear certain frequencies very very high frequencies or very very low frequencies and in fact there's quite a wide range of things that humans just can't detect it's like i always think of those little fish that live right down at the bottom of the deepest parts of the ocean they, they can't see they can't they can't really detect much because they just live in a completely pitch black environment but they have um extremely sensitive detection of of um of movement of the water so they can detect and in some cases they have things like sonar or bats is another good example of it bats have literally like um extremely high high frequency i believe uh, i've just actually had a quick quick break there to check the actual frequency and humans can basically um not hear anything above around about 15 kilohertz whereas bats can actually detect frequencies up to 100 kilohertz so it's almost 10 times higher frequency detection for bats compared to what humans have and that that's something that, that really fascinates me so bats can actually detect things in in their reality i guess you could say actually contains a lot more you know it contains things that we can't even detect at all and there's a lot of other creatures that can detect um certain things that that we can't detect and could it be that a hive mind consciousness can actually create its own sensors to actually build a much bigger picture of reality than what we can even imagine so 
you, you could actually be able to create sensors to plug into this hive mind, you know, whatever type of sensors they may be, like metal and plastic based or biological based. And all of these sensors that you plug into the hive mind can just broaden the actual perceivable reality that's experienced by the hive mind. And um, if that was the case, the reality inhabited by the hive mind would be much different to our own, just in the same way that those um, blind fish that live at the bottom of the sea, they wouldn't be able to experience a reality anything like what we do. And we look at them and we see them as completely blind little creatures that don't experience what we experience. Perhaps some kind of very advanced hive mind would look at us the same way. But yeah, so those points there, there's some interesting kind of counter arguments. I always think when you have an idea, you have to counter it really. And and essentially my idea is really, um, you know, it is an extraterrestrial hypothesis of sorts. And Jacques Vallée, obviously somebody who I respect very highly and, and many other people do as well. And who better to, to provide some counter arguments? I think some of the points that Jacques makes there um, definitely don't necessarily kind of gel with with what i'm saying and uh, particularly that um the i think it was the third point um there but yeah the third point the one that, re that relates to the physical effects on abductees uh, that one in particular is a bit of a tough one to to really understand and how that would fit in with what i'm saying here but i don't think the others really do and there's nothing in in there that, that really kind of would would make you rule out the concept of a an extremely advanced hive mind that experiences reality in a different way to us um, and that potentially can manifest certain things as you know detectable to us i suppose the the bigger question there is why would the the hive mind consciousness from somewhere else out there in the universe even want to create sensors that w that are visible to us because you would assume that the, the this hive mind would have the ability to create sensors that we can't detect so the fact that if any of this even is true which it, it it's quite likely that it, that it's not i suppose but just to kind of assume that that, that is what what the um the things that we're witnessing with ufos and these phenomenon you know if that is the case why are they creating things that are visible to us you know i suppose even if you look at it outside of my actual theory here about the hive mind and so on you know you've got to think just in general the others whoever it is that's responsible for this phenomenon why are they creating you know experiences which people can remember when they've been abducted why are they creating craft that can be allowing the craft that they've created why are they allowing them to be viewed by humans what what's the point there what are they trying to do are they trying to influence us in a way are they trying to steer the course of humanity a certain way for for some reason who knows but anyway, I've been talking about this for way too long already, so that's all we've got time for for today. But I had a lot of uh, feedback from people about the uh, the experience harvesting hypothesis episode that I did, and um, a lot of people really enjoyed it. So hopefully uh, you guys like listening to this one as well, where I've kind of gone back into that and expanded on it a little bit and sort of questioned it and interrogated my own theory there a little bit. Um but yeah, it's an interesting thought. Like I said, definitely have no proof for any of it. And I don't think it's even really possible to, to go about trying to prove any of that really. But it's interesting to speculate. So that's all we've got time for for today's episode. So uh, thank you very much for listening. If you've listened all the way to this point, you are a hardcore listener of the podcast, as I, as I always say. So take it easy, stay curious, and I'll catch you in the next episode. UFO Thinker Podcast.